0: Okay, so today I am in Manchester with uh, Jeff Lawton. Thanks very much for agreeing to talk to me today, Jeff, in this is, uh, most impressive uh, man's cave I've ever been in. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, from what you've told me, you're from Modest Means, born in Barnsley, and are now a very successful punter, owner, and breeder. Is it all through your prowess with for a form book?
1: Um, I would say so. Now, probably earlier on, maybe not so much so, um, I think more for me it's having the time to dedicate it since I went fully professional, got rid of all the business interests I had and I think that's the biggest thing for me, having the time to dedicate, it, to be able to go through the form book, you know, gradually rather than in a rush.
0: So you are now fully professional panther?
1: Oh God, yeah, I've been so far without any other business interests for about Seventeen, eighteen years now.
0: Okay, so between now and uh, then and now, when you were born in Barnsley, you've been a policeman, part of the team that caught the Yorkshire Ripper, moonlighted as a DJ while still a policeman, uh, ran an entertainment business, and became friend of the stars, uh, Gary Barlow being one. Where did you find the time to become a form book expert?
1: Well, all those things you mentioned were <coughs> many years. They were they were sort of late eighties. I had a cabaret club in Manchester called uh, Big Wigs, hence the, I don't know if you noticed the number plate, I've got that on, on there. And I became friends with many of them, like Tamla Motel's star, Jimmy Ruffin, um, Ray Lewis from The Drifters, and, and loads more. Um, it was late 90s onwards that I really started to make consistent profits uh, out of racing. When I decided I was going to jack in all my other interests
0: and just concentrate on that okay so where did that interest in horse racing come from originally
1: uh would have to be my dad even though he was only like a a 50p each way punter but uh, we used to holiday a lot in places like great yarmouth and i remember as a 12 and 13 year old him taking into me taking me into the betting shops uh, there and then as a 16 year old when i started work going into that's when the old Excel system was around, and uh, and then from being 18, I used to go racing as much as I could on d- all my days off. I would I would go, and it just developed from there. I um, was no good at it. I might
0: add. That's what I was going to say. I assume you were doing your money at that point.
1: <laughs> well, if I managed to get through two weeks of a month's salary when I was in the police, I'd had a good month. Um, having said that, I was the first person I know that. Managed to get a video recorder back in 1981 when there were no even video shops. But I think I just had a a particularly good week one week and thought, well, I better better spend it on this rather than give it back to the bookies. I actually remember um, one night when I was in the police uh, and I told them all I'd got a a video uh, recorder. Four of us jumped into a police car at three o'clock one morning when it was quiet, drove 15 miles to my house to watch an episode of The Professionals. <laughs> and it was like mesmerising for
0: them, but yeah, they then film far between though. They didn't have one in the police station then?
1: No, oh God, no. There were no even <laughs> video shops in those days.
0: So what was, the, what was the sort of catalyst that turned you into a winning punter from like a recreational losing one?
1: Uh, as I said, I think the main was having the time to, to be able to spend um, and certainly when I started doing my own, my own ratings and that, I would, I mean obviously I was busy at that, that initial time, so I would spend the day in the office when I was managing all the bands as an entertainment agent, I'd then go out to see them at night and I used to try and get home for midnight so I could then watch the day's racing, or the previous day's racing, and I always knew it would have to bed, go to bed when the birds started singing, which was usually about four o'clock in the morning.
0: Yeah, so you've, you've skipped that. So you were in the police. Yeah. You were losing money when you were in the police. In between, you were moonlighting as a DJ. So how did the jump from the police to the music industry come Okay. Around? So I I started
1: DJing when I was in the police, but but you can't do that. You're not allowed any other income whatsoever. And... I I got offered the chance to go to Scandinavia working, and I went there in 1980, well, I'd I'd just left the police and I went to Scandinavia to work, and then from there I came home and I went to Croatia to work, or what was the old Yugoslavia then, Uh, this was all DJing, and then I got a job in a a ski resort for winter, still DJing, but in the two weeks that I came home for a holiday between the summer and winter, i My dad died, and I met my first wife, so i never I never went back and Then we went into pubs I had a pub in Harrogate and then eventually moved across to Manchester opened the cabaret club in
0: the late eighties um, and that's how it all saw, i got I got to there so was this um sort of rave stuff or was it this no
1: more the old-fashioned cabaret I'd got the old 70s acts on like the Bay City Rollers and Tony Christie and and Jimmy Ruffin Edwin Starr, all the big all these big names and that's how it all started me getting into the entertainment industry
0: okay so you you say you go back to the the betting and the form you had more time to study the form Um, I mean, formed studies all about interpretation. Were you interpreting it wrong before, or did you just literally learn more?
1: I think, like most people, I treated it as a hobby too much. Um, I always had other incomes, so it wasn't that important to me win or lose, even though I want to win and everybody wants to win, but it was never the end of the world if I lost. And I think that's most casual punters' problem. It's not the be-all and end-all is winning.
0: OK, but you've still got to, I mean, most punters try very, very hard and they still can't be as successful as you've, as you've been. Yeah. So what does the punter, what do you see in your interpretation of the form and win that someone that reads the same form doesn't and loses? Well, everything I do, I back up with
1: figures. I find that my eyes, our eyes... Deceivers when a horse wins easily or it looks unlucky and running must be a good thing ne- next time. Uh, but if the figures tell me different, I tend to have another think about it because I do think figures are really important. And that's speed figures can be any, any figures that you use. People use different figures, like racing post ratings, time form, speed figures. Um, there can be the, whatever you use that you believe in back them up, um, the figures will back up what you think. Or if it doesn't back up what you think, then step away.
0: And you went one step further because you you started doing your own ratings. So what were they based on and what did the, uh, race form and time form lack that your ratings improved on? Um, I don't think my ratings are better than time form or race
1: form. I think they're more personal to me. And I started doing them when I had quite a few horses in training because I wanted to place them. And that's, that's that's how they originally started. And now I use them, obviously, from a betting point of view. And it's hard work keeping on top of them. Obviously, I only do the two-year-old races, the three-year-old races. And it's hard work keeping on top of everything and redoing them when horses have run when I've come out of the race and you've got to rejig
0: them again. But it, it does pay dividends. And, I mean, why would you concentrate on two-year-olds and three-year-olds and flat racing? Um, I think that
1: when you're looking at horses that run ten, time, 10 times plus, they're not going to improve like a, a two-year-old would, would, who's had one or two runs, who can be unlucky, who can be green, who can... Um, just just look like they don't know what they're doing. When you get to know the horse of work since, or even at the pedigree, that's where I find the edge comes on two- and three-year-olds, rather than a four-year-old handicapper that has run lots
0: of times. Okay, because a lot of what you do there must be based on what you anticipate is going to happen an improvement rather than what has happened whereas if you were studying sort of uh, hurdlers or chasers
1: yeah, I tend to concentrate on the flat anyway so I wouldn't even though I do bet over jumps nowhere near to the volume that I would on the the flat so I do I think you've got to specialise whatever you believe in, whatever you are good at concentrate on, on that thing you can't be a jack of all trades
0: all right, so what is the core element of your ratings?
1: Well, as I said, my figures would be what I design for myself. Um, whether it be one, the one thing I would say about when I look in a form book, the most important thing in the form book for me is there's no hype. <clears throat> you we can all get carried away about the rumours that come from Newmarket and Lambourne and all these other training centres. But the form book is real. It's what you see in the form book is factual. So I think that's one of the important things to me is that you don't listen to all these rumours.
0: And with two-year-olds especially, I imagine what they look like in the paddock is very important. Yeah. Where do you get your information for that? Do you go racing on a regular basis?
1: Not as much as I used to do. I used to be four or five days a week religiously I would never never do less than four days in a week now I'm not sure the the benefit is there when you when you think that I'll I'll start work at six o'clock in the morning you've then probably got a three-hour drive you have got three hours at the races three hours back you're not getting home until eight o'clock and I like to start tomorrow's racing today so if I'm not getting in until eight o'clock you have something to eat suddenly it's midnight and you need to be alert, so there's no point doing this when, you, when you're shattered all the time. I just found that weighing up, is it worth me going racing? Am I getting that much benefit out of it? And probably the answer is, is no. I, I'm, I'm all right doing it from where I am.
0: And obviously, you've, um, you've said what races sort of races you concentrate on, so you can put a line through a lot of them. Yeah. But can you, do, can you whittle it down even further than that? So the races, you know, you put a line through, obviously, I assume... At the maidens, and un- what unraced two year old races? Yeah, I would sell
1: them back an unraced unraced horse. Un-race um sell them uh, you know, I mean these are all over bet, all over hyped, and I would very I would never say never to anything, but I would sell them back an unraced
0: two year old. Right, so you're a layer as well as a backer?
1: No, no, I don't lay. I, I don't lay. I just avoid I just avoid them. Um what I tend to do is and I think this is important, I'll touch on this later. For me, one of the most important things is identifying the races to bet in. So there might be four meetings, three meetings, and I'll identify the races that I'm interested in looking at, and I'll do that 11 o'clock the day before the race. So I'll run the sheets off, put some figures to them, the races that I'm interested in, and then... Leave them alone while six o'clock next morning, and I might have got six or seven races to look at, and I'll usually whittle that down to two, or possibly three races that I want to bet in. But I want to bet in the
0: races where I'm the favourite, not the bookmakers the favourite. Okay, and you put you say you put the figures to them. Do you price them up yourself?
1: No, I tend not to do that. Again, it's all down to to purely down to time. There are only so many hours you can you can do this and i find in somewhere I'm, I'm probably doing 14 hours a day anyway. So you, start, you
0: have to believe in somebody else's work as well. Okay, so how much would you believe, if you got somebody marking your card as far as prices go?
1: Um, no, I mean, I, I used to get the old tissue when it was out for what it was worth, and then you'll see, you'll see bookmaker prices come up as early as 3 o'clock the day before, so you get a mark as to, as to where you are. But as I say, if you start trying to do your own prices, it does become very, you know,
0: not enough time. And finally, on this part, you you don't put, put your own prices up so you're not then swayed by what the prices are when the when the market settles down.
1: Um, I, I do find in this game there are two markets. <clears throat> the early morning market and the market 15 minutes before the race. And they're chalk and cheese. So it's... I like to get my bets on early. I always think I know more than the bookie at 8 o'clock in the morning. By 9 o'clock, they probably know more than me. So I like to have my bets on early and
0: and get the prices. All right, Jeff. So we talked briefly in part one, we talked at length in part one about how you do it and what you do. Um, But you've also done very well as an owner. Uh, yeah. bought your first horse in 1995 now was that funded by the the nightclubs and stuff or was it uh, your punting
1: no definitely not um that was in the days where the uh, entertainment agency i was running we were doing about 450 to 500 gigs a month so it was it was quite a busy uh, b- busy agency so definitely not the punting so you
0: were successful in business already oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so you landed running as an owner uh, You've mentioned that your club was called Big Wigs. and uh, So how did the purchase of your first, of Miss Big Wig happen? And who picked her?
1: Um, I wouldn't say I picked her. I mean, in those days, Jack Berry was the person to have a, a two-year-old with. And uh, I called him up and I said, I'm interested in buying a horse. And I got the famous trainer line. Oh, I've got one just that'll suit you. Which I think's been used a lot by, <laughs> by many trainers. So I went up to see uh, the filly and we, we did the deal. I, I think I paid... 10, 10 grand for her, I think is what I paid. Um, she went and won on a debut which was a but it was a, a bit of a stroker look. It was the, uh, the last race on the card. Oh it runs a two year- old last race on the card in, in first of April, I think it was. And uh, she was I think she was second favorite and she came into the straight looking like she was going to run well. And then a Peter Chapel Iron horse that Robert Sangsthorne called Solo Symphony came by, I went about two lengths up, collided with the rails, threw John Reed up its neck, and my filly got back up and one on the line. So it was like, um, I thought this is easy. And on the way out, I remember telling Peter Chapel, I am, uh, well, I was quite pleased to tell him that my, my filly had beat his, and it was the first time I'd had a runner. And uh, he was like, enjoy it because it's all downhill from here. And, uh, and he was right. But as somebody who grew up in a, in a council house in, in Barnsley, the last thing I expected was ever to own a horse, let alone have a winner. So to then go and win with the first one, it was like, can't get any better than this.
0: And were you serious punting at
1: this point? And I was punting, but I was, I was probably still not winning. I mean, this is what, 95, I think it was. So, now I was still very busy in the entertainment agency. And um, so I was punting, but not winning. I mean, she went on to win three races as a two-year-old and didn't even cover uh, training fees, which just shows how bad the finances are in British racing. But, hey-ho. I went on to have another 72 winners. So I've had 73 so far, so I've, I've done okay.
0: Yeah, and counting. And we'll see <laughs> um, so did you, did you back her that day when she won on the yes of course Yeah. <laughs> so tell us a bit more about Jack Berry Jack Berry is
1: just a character just a really really nice guy um, a true story about Jack so back in my entertainment agency capacity uh, I'd been asked to go to uh, do a nightclub visit in Blackpool and they had a big promotion night, and I'd been asked to judge something or other I can't remember what it was so on the way there I rang Jack and I said Jack can I come and see my horses and he said to me you bloody well can't at this time of night he said but where are you going I said I'm going to Blackpool he said come and pick me up I'll come with you I thought well this is not <laughs> going to be for Jack but we went along to this uh to this nightclub and it was quite an impressive night they got things like a a week abroad as a prize, a weekend away as a prize, and then they got this top of the range of its day sound system with all the bells and whistles. And uh <laughs> this the woman who owned it would be as she'd be as sharp as a cheese grater. She came up to me and said, uh, listen, she said, I'm not giving this prize away to anybody. Do you think? if I rig the prize, that old fella that stood next to you, do you think he'll come up and collect the prize? She says, I'll give him 20 quid for his troubles. (laughs) Well, of course, that was declined, and uh, Jack still goes on about it every time I've spoken to him since he's mentioned it.
0: (laughs) Now, you you, you moved on to several other trainers after Jack, and then you hit on Carl Burke. Yes. So what what other trainers did you use?
1: Oh, many. Um, Paul Cole, Paul Darcy, Gerard Butler, Paul Blockley, Rod Millman, Stan Moore. Pff, many more. But it was uh, obviously finding Carl that, that turned the own inside realm for me, for
0: sure. Hey, you uh, you spread your wings a bit going down to Rod Millman. He's not far from me. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, it, well, it was a, and funny enough, that was... Um, it was also well. My favorite place to visit is an island in the British Virgin Islands called Jos van Dyke, and I called that horse Jos van Dyke, and it won at uh, it won at Yarmouth, only a cellar, but it, it, it won when it was supposed to.
0: Okay. Now, as well as owning racehorses, you've also got a breeding operation. Yep. Um, you caught a bit of a cold with that initially. Caught a big cold.
1: Yeah. Um, I, it was in. 2008 when the huge recession took place uh, I just retired imperialistic and put it in fall to haft that won the 2000 guineas uh, but I just thought if I'm going to do it I might as well do it right so I either retired or bought five more mares and what I didn't realize was that six mayors in two or three years became 18 with foals and, and yearlings so I'm now feeding 18 horses and then nobody wanted to buy them um, we had this huge recession and I even bred the 2012 German 1000 guineas winner Electoral in that um, Rafe Beckett trained and also a 99 rated filly called Imperialistic Diva which I ended up selling half of it to Tim Easterby for 5 grand for and, but it was bad days. I mean, I, I probably lost between three hundred and fifty and four hundred and fifty thousand breathing. So it was something that I won't be repeating.
0: Um, so you still did the music at this point? Or have you sold up and got a few? Sold. Yeah,
1: this was two thousand and eight. I would have got out of the entertainment business
0: two thousand and six-ish, I guess. Okay, so, yeah. I mean, people, when they get a few quid, go into horse race ownership yeah. without too much research. Yeah. I mean, when you got into breeding, where did you, did you take sort of advice from anybody about that? Or did you just go uh, into Probably
1: it? not. Pro- probably, probably gung-ho and uh, lift a regret. But. So is that, is that finished now? You don't you don't breed at all? No,
0: no, no, definitely not. Okay, and also, plenty of feathers to your bow. Um, you're a jockey's agent.
1: Oh, God, yeah. Uh, that was that was fleeting. I, I got the chance, or I got asked to do Ian Mungan when he relinquished his uh, amateur status. Um, and I found that, oh, I just found that very, very tough. And I, I, I gave that up. But in 2014, after Kieran Fallon had um, he'd won the 2000 guineas on Night of Thunder, he asked me if I would do, it, do him. Now, I've known Kieran a good 15 years by then and had it been anybody else I would have said no but I, I said I would do Karen. but it was only about two years before he retired and he's sort of he wasn't as popular as he as he was and and, and I, I didn't do it a long time but I also did Sepp Sanders at the same same time so at least I can say I did two ex-champion
0: jockeys so was it a bit like ringing around trying to get a band gigs or was it you know did you picking the rides for these jockeys or did you just yeah. have to ring up and beg for the rides?
1: Uh both. I use my figures a lot of the time to, to ask for rides and I did I thought I did quite well for, for Kieran. Um yeah, I did quite well, but I, I do remember telling Graham Post up uh, Graham Paul, Graham Green from the Racing Post that uh, I felt it was a bit like being a double glazing salesman.
0: And I suppose what you get a, what happens you get a percentage of the jockeys earnings. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 10% of what, uh, but it did never amounted to, to that much. No, so I mean, it was for you, for a person in your position at that point, it was a lot of work for not a lot. Yeah,
1: of them. I did it out of friendship more than from a business point of view.
0: Okay, so, um, right, your CV, it's an unusual one for a professional punter, so we're going to talk about it a bit. We're on the Yorkshire Ripper <laughs> case, so we've all, we've all
1: seen the the latest TV programme. Well, that's probably the best one, The Long Shadow, actually. Um, So, I I joined the police in 1978, Uh, it was the only job I'd ever really wanted to do from being a a kid, and I was stationed in Sheffield. Um, After I'd been in a couple of years, I worked on a support group for the Yorkshire Ripper case. It wasn't anything flash, We, we actually sat in an unmarked police car in a red light area in Sheffield called Havelock Square, reading car number plates into uh, what was an old dictaphone. These were then typed up the next day by uh, typists, and they would all be filed. Now, if you saw the the, the room in the police station, files were literally floor to ceiling. There was no computers, so there's no wonder it took so long to actually catch him. Um, He was eventually caught by, you'd like to say good police work, but it was a a fluke, a total fluke, 2nd of January 1981 I believe, uh, he was caught by two colleagues of mine, uh, Sergeant Bob Ring and a new PC called uh, Bob Hyde, and they just happened to drop on this car. And, uh, but if you've seen The Long Shadow, you'll get the story there. The only thing they didn't put in The, in the Long Shadow was um, that when, he, when he was taken to the police station, which in those days, he wasn't even an offence to be with a prostitute. They took him to make a statement. You made a statement. The prostitute was a girl called Olivia Reivers, and he had to make a statement about, about her. So they gave him free run of the police station. What they found out later was they put a knife and a screwdriver in one of the cisterns of the uh of the toilet and that's uh, that was the yorkshire ripper
0: and the the people at the char- at the top of that case didn't come out very well at all in the uh in the documentary was that sort of out of your vision in those that would have? Been-
1: well it, it was being run from Chapeltown in Leeds. It just happened to be that he was caught at, at our police station, but they were running it um guy called Joel, George Oldfield, if I remember rightly, was the guy who was, who was running it. know, uh, I don't think they did come out very well, uh, to be honest. And um, for what it's worth, same police station was where the Hillsborough disaster was a few
0: years later. So it was a busy little place. OK, we like these interviews to be uh, positive. So <laughs> a much nicer chap than the Yorkshire Ripper, I think is uh, certain to say, it was young Gary Barlow. Oh yeah, uh, are you still in touch with Gary?
1: No, not at all. Uh, I knew Gary when he was about seventeen. It was when I got the Cabaret Club. He used to come and play every other Tuesday, I think it was, and I used to pay him sixty quid. Uh, And he was uh, he had uh, bright blonde dyed hair, uh, and he used to come in sort of three quarter length shorts. But he was very, very good even then, And the true story is: he actually played uh, he played me a, a, on an old cassette tape, a song that he'd written asking me what I thought of it. A million love songs. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right, Jeff. Um, we've got a few more stories about Gary Barlow for all those) uh... All of his fans out there do you that might be interested punch? in the gambling.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anyway, he told me he'd been headhunted by this Manchester modelling agency to put a band together and they are putting four dancers behind him, one of whom, of course, was Robbie Williams. And I think they released three singles which all flopped. And I remember telling him to stop wasting his time when he can gig and earn good money around the nightclubs and and. and other other venues, and he said the record company said they're, they're going to produce one more song, and if that doesn't work, they're going to drop us. And of course, that was it. Only takes a minute, and that one went and take that
0: one on the way. Shows yeah, that's what it, I knew the rest. Of it. Yeah, but luckily, you're a better judge of horses than <laughs> you are pop stars. So, Apparently, um, we like to hear about winners. So tell us about a few of your successful gambles. Well. <clears throat> There's,
1: th- I've had obviously quite a lot, but there are three that I picked out not because of the price, not because I'm being clever, or, or not because how much I won, but um, there was a horse I had with Paul Cole called Maidan and Groove, and um, she wasn't a lot, but she was better than a seller, and so I entered her for a seller in July 2008 at Leicester. And it was only a five-horse race, and I think she'd be about 10 to 11 in the morning. Second favourite would be about 7 to 4, 2 to 1, trained by Jeremy Gask, the Aussie trailer, uh, trainer. And then there were three others that was like, name the price. And I thought she was a good thing, but I rang Jeremy Gask up, and I said, Look, I want to back my filly. I, I don't know if it's right to ask you, but do you fancy yours? And he said in his Aussie accent "Oh, don't worry about mine mate she's not been out of a box for a month so of course that would fill your boots time so I think in those days I lived in Newmarket and there's nine betting shops there and I had a little army that went round every betting shop all morning by 10.30 every betting shop had got a sign up saying no more bets on and Groove so we then jumped in the car and went up to Leicester and I think she'd be I don't know, maybe four to six at that time, four to seven, but we backed her into two to five and she won seven lengths without coming off the bridle. The Jeremy Gask was tailed off last and never ran
0: again. <laughs> so but, why, how come you were in Newmarket? Did you want to be where all the action was?
1: Not really, I'd, I'd, um, I'd split up from my first wife and I mean, th- we lived in this house, so I'd split up and I'd already got an apartment in Newmarket so I just it was just easy to move there at that time. Okay, so the next one, uh, the next one um, was probably the best horse I had um, that ended up winning a Group One and a Group Two race for me. Uh, that was in two thousand and seventeen. I had a horse called, unfortunately, um, one. And going back to Carl Burke, this I was I was touching on Carl earlier. Pound for pound, Carl buys the best horses of any trainer I've ever dealt with. He paid 24,000 euros for, unfortunately, we sold her for a stupid amount of money. And that would be Carl all over. And I've got other, other horses exactly the same with him. But I'll go back to, uh, <clears throat> unfortunately. So he won his maiden at Hamilton, impressively. And then we decided to run him... In a listed race at uh, Maisel Lafitte, where I I think he finished second. We then ran him in a conditioned race at Pontefract. And my figures, on my figures, I thought he was a certainty. And I had a huge, he wasn't favorite, but I had a huge bet on him. And you wouldn't have wanted to be on anything else in the race right the way through until he hit the front and started stargazing. And a Charlie Appleby horse that was favorite nutted him on the line, from then on we put him in a visor, different horse altogether. So we then went from there, and so this is a lose and a win, so we then went from there to the Robert Papam, the Group 2 race at Mays on the Feet, he was 20-1 to 1 in the morning, my figures told me he got at least £6 in hand that day, if you ignored the Pontefract run, so again, we and I was still in new market. We backed him right into ten to one, and he won that. So that's probably that would be as big a, a win as I've had. One of the biggest wins I've had for a while. Um, and then the other one that I wanted to tell you about was the horse that won the Air Bowl Cup last year. No longer in my ownership. Uh, he, we sold him to uh, Julie Camacho, uh, but as a two-year-old. He was always a very, very smart horse. Oh, just let me touch it back on, 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 unfortunately, again. Because after the pre-Robert Papam, we then entered him in the Group 1 pre-Morning. And it was like, this is not real. May I, I, as I go back to, I'm from a council house in Barnsley. This is not real, me having a... A horse in a, a group group one race so I never had really a shilling on him what I did do, I, I chartered a light aircraft and flew from Newmarket to Deauville and I took a couple of pals with, with me and I always remember thinking this is never going to happen again just enjoy it so I, we went to the top of the stands and uh, still get choked and he won't and I was like, "This is the best day I've ever had." People talk about what's the best day in your life, and obviously, I got two gorgeous girls, daughters. They're grown up now, but if I'm honest, that's the best day in my life. Anyway, going. <laughs> <laughs> let me take a drink of water because so I'm getting a bit hoarse. So going back to significantly, um, we always thought he was really smart as a two-year-old but I think he finished second on his first four starts. And it was only when, and if Carl watches this, <laughs> I'm not trying to take it, steal his thunder, but I actually said to Carl, this horse has got to make the running. And Carl was always against it, but on the day that he said it was okay to make the running, he won at Newcastle. And we knew then the way to ride him. But as a, as a three-year-old, on his second start, we put him in a conditions race at Hamilton. And he, he finished second to a horse called Dragon Leader, who went on to win the Commonwealth Cup that year, although disqualified, he was first past the post. And part of the conditions of the race said that the handicapper can only reassess the winner. He can't touch any ratings of the others. So the fact that we'd gone second... To that horse, which which I think went on to win a, a group three before, before Ascot, group three or group two, the handicapper would have obviously reassessed us and gave us a number, either another four or five pounds. So I said to Carl, we can't run again until, until Ascot. Then the handicapper has to leave him on, the same mark. And that day, the rain, it had rained for 24 hours, and it looked like Ascot was going to be off. And they inspected the track twice, but the beauty was he would have he wanted it bottomless um I'd been backing him for about three weeks at sixteen to one, and on the day he actually led and the ah, everything were closing. I think he won ahead in the end, but had he have been reassessed, he wouldn't have won, so it was a that sort of gave me a great deal of pleasure
0: right now everybody's heard about your triumphs. <laughs> you got any uh, other oh things yeah. in that didn't go to plan?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I told you about the, unfortunately, one, which yeah. stargazing. I... Stargazing. Stargazing did me. <clears throat> but there was two others and, that come to mind. In fact, I can't even remember the name of the second horse, but I do remember the first one. And that was Maidan Groove, the horse that won the cellar for me at Leicester that I mentioned. So I entered her for another cellar at Wolverhampton, it was an evening meeting, and I booked Jamie Spencer, and I told everybody that wanted to listen it would need an act of God to, to get her beaten. Anyway, she got two acts of God. Firstly, Jamie Spencer cried off. I don't think he fancied the trip from Newbury in the afternoon to Wolverhampton at night, so he cried off. The only person available to ride was a guy called Travis Block. And really, hindsight's great, but I should have withdrawn her. But I just thought, even he can't get beat on her. And then coming out of the stalls, she got a huge bang and lost about six lengths. And I think she was beaten ahead in the end. And that was the worst day's punting ever. I think, I think I had 65 grand, if I remember rightly, I did on her.
0: I was going to say, you talked about bad days and good days. I mean, is that the sort of figures we're talking about?
1: What, when I, suppose, when I lose? know yeah. that's by far, far the worst. I just thought she couldn't get beat. It just shows that you can know too much. And the other one it was only two weeks later, and uh, that was also at Wolverhampton. Patsy Cosgrave rode her, uh, him. I can't even remember the name of the horse, but, uh, but Patsy Cosgrave rode him and uh, ended up getting days for overuse of the whip, and he got done a short head. So in two weeks on about 100 grand and I said you just know you can know too much on your own horses and I said that, that'll that be it and, and I stopped betting to that level on my own horses
0: Now you mentioned you can know too much and the story you told earlier on about the trainer on the second in said yeah you know this one's been in the box for a week made yours a potentially good thing I mean how often as an owner and obviously you've got quite a few horses so how often would that sort of gem Land in your lap. <laughs> Never. It was like winning, finding a winning lottery
1: ticket. Never. That just doesn't happen. You know, I mean, if you do speak to trains, yeah, we've got a chance or whatever. But for him to say it's been stood in its box for a month, kick on.
0: Now, I'm, I'm interested. I want to go back to what you just said a minute ago, um, the, back in your own horses. Yeah. Because you'd think, as a professional gambler, the only thing you don't know when you've done all the form, is what the other owners do know. Yeah. So you'd have thought, looking at it logically, that if you own a horse, you've got that extra bit of edge on top. Mm. Now, is it because it's is it because you've just psychologically told yourself not to do it, or is it actually was it a logical thing? Is it good or bad being a professional punter to own horses? <clears throat> good question. Um, I think. The good side
1: is, yes, you get to know more, you know, the trainer will, will talk candidly to you. But you tend to look at a race through here, not through here, when you, when you own one. You want your horse to win, so you make every assumption that it can win. Um, I definitely don't think it's a detriment from a punting point of view to not own horses. As much as people think it is. If it's unraced, maybe. But the form's in the book. And I would say, you don't have to have horses too. I always thought when I first got in with with Jack, um, having horses and then spreading them far and wide. At one stage, I had 12 horses in training one year with, and I think with eight different trainers. And I thought, oh, I'm sure to find out information. No, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that. I think yeah. it confuses
0: you as much as it helps you. And were you one of these owners that would sort of go down and just give your horse a sugar lump? Um, I, I did in the early days. I, I used to go
1: to the stables on a Sunday, and more so when I was breeding, because I, I kept them at uh, Franny Lee's. Uh, Franny who has just died, I used to keep them at his yard in Wilmslow. And and I would go down on a Sunday there, but uh, from when they're racing, probably not.
0: All right, Jeff. So, been a professional punter, successful professional punter for 17 years. Um, People can't see it, but I'm in a a man cave that's bigger than my flat. Um, When I first spoke to you, you you kindly spoke to me when you were in Australia on holiday. Yeah. Um, You told me you're going off to more exotic parts again to get away from this cold. I mean, does a punting life give you freedom, or are you, in reality, a slave to it wherever you go in the world?
1: Definitely yes, I am a slave to it. I would, I would do three. If I was going to say three hundred and sixty-five days a year, but I did take Christmas Day off this year, so so three hundred and sixty-four days. Even when I'm I'm away, as you say, I was in Australia, and the time difference didn't help because that was eleven hours in front of England, so that didn't help. But I would still do every day a good three to four hours uh, wherever I'm in the world. Um, it's just something, I wouldn't know what to do if I got up and, and didn't do it. So, yeah, I do. I, and I start, when I'm here, I start at 6 o'clock prompt. If it's a busy day, it could be 5, 4. I've even seen me get up at 2 a.m. when it's a real busy day to, to do that, to do the work.
0: Okay, so when you're on holiday, when you're in Australia, for example, are you still punting? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. So using, I, using my VPN. <laughs> well, I, I know that you're in contact with other professional punters because one of them put you up for this and the other one asked me to say hello. Um, so do you get your heads together as in actually what bets to strike? Or... No,
1: no, I wouldn't say it. Yeah, we, we speak I speak to I speak to two or three people regular, but no, I, I, I prefer to do my own thing. If I get it wrong I've nobody else to
0: blame. Okay, so you're not like a part of a network? No, sort of, uh, definitely not. not. You wouldn't bet anything on anybody else's advice? I never
1: say never, but 99% of the time, definitely not.
0: Okay, so, would you're, so you're a professional punter. You've got no other form of income apart from gambling. Yeah. So how do you structure what you do? Um, have you got like a separate amount of money that you divide into stakes? Or have you got it all on spreadsheets? You know, how methodical and businesslike is oh, it? Oh,
1: very much. I, I record every single bet I have. I could go back years and see you'd see every, every bet that, I, that I've struck.
0: That's the only way to know where you are. And knowing where we are, I mean, looking around us, I'm assuming that week to week you don't have to win to pay the bills. No. So you're comfortable enough that there's a psychological cushion.
1: Yeah. Um, that makes a huge difference.
0: Have you, are you still up in the game as far as stakes and what you're trying to win goes, or have you set yourself a level and you're quite comfortable with it? Um, I wouldn't say I've
1: set myself a level, but sometimes you feel not comfortable if you go over over a figure. I wouldn't know what that figure is, but sometimes you go, I've had a little bit much on there. Um, But I mean, I would stake... Between eight to ten grand a day, and on a busyish day, it could get higher than that. Come middle of summer when it's when there's five six meetings, um, but I, I I'm in control of it. I can walk away if I don't need. To. If I if I do have a bad run, I'm happy to take a couple of days off. Just uh, you know, let the cobwebs blow out of the brain. Um, I think you've got to. I think this job can really get to you if you don't just
0: walk away sometimes. Yeah, we haven't mentioned this about the questions, but it's interesting you should say that because you can walk away from it for a couple of days if you have a bad run. Yeah. Why can't you just think sod it for the time you're on holiday?
1: Because I think it's like putting a jigsaw together. And if you take a few days off, you've got pieces missing. So from my perspective, listen, if, you're a, if, you're a, if you punt as a hobby, Go on, have you two weeks holiday. You don't need to look at it. But this is not a hobby to me. This is my only source of income. So I have to get it right. And I really can't take my eye off the ball.
0: Now, the best judges I've ever met have all admitted to some really quite bad losing runs. What would be a losing run? At what point would it get to the point where you start getting a bit twitchy? Um, I try and not
1: judge daily. I try and not judge weekly. I would judge monthly. So it's if I have a bad month, if I show a, a don't show a profit in a month, is when I start getting twitchy. And I just had two months in, which I think would be September and October of this year, and and I hadn't had a losing month for about fourteen months, and then at September and October. The wheels fell off, and I had no clue why. And it didn't matter what I did; could not do anything right. And I just had to take a little bit of time away. Otherwise, you know, it's mental as much as financial.
0: Yeah. So, but that sounds quite positive because you you would base that on having two months where you didn't win. But not... No, not didn't win. Lost. lost.
1: There's a big difference in not winning.
0: I lost. But you haven't you haven't sort of judged it on. 30 consecutive losing days or something no. like that.
1: No, I look per calendar month, everything's, I've got everything logged. I say I've, I've got all my bets recorded for the last four or five years, whatever it is. And I can look at any month and see whether I won or lost in that month. And I say September or October, just couldn't do anything right. And I lost substantial.
0: Okay, I'm not expecting you to, obviously you're not going to tell me exactly what happens here, but I'm assuming that um, if you ring up a bookmaking firm and ask to open an account, please, they're not over-enamoured in taking your bets. So what are the, what's the practicalities of you <laughs> getting on? Well, oh, this is interesting, seeing as you're from Star Sports, because Star right. Sports... <laughs> I'm a freelancer. <laughs> right. Uh, well, the star sports the only... do employ me to do these. And okay. great, great bookmaking firm. him. I think yeah,
1: not I not. But... I'm going <laughs> to agree with that. I think they are. Apart from the don't let me get on before 10 o'clock price. But there you go. Um, bookmakers close you down these days, not only for winning, but for losing as well. So if you win too much or lose too much, they, they close you down. So it's nigh on impossible. I mean, I've had... I've had literally, I've exhausted everybody I know to walk the counts and then see them close. I mean, one year we had 84 accounts closed in one summer alone. Um, but it's not as easy as that. I just had a, a, I just had a nameless firm who just refused to pay out £7,000 in winnings to somebody who'd, who'd got an account. Um, so it is it's difficult. I mean, 90% of my bets are not with mainstream
0: bookmakers. I mean, would you... Personally, consider going racing and having it on again.
1: No, because I think the most important thing is the early prices. And you, you know, by the time you go racing, everybody knows.
0: Yeah, and you. You've, I think you said to me when we were chatting when you were in Australia that you do most of your betting in the morning. Yeah, before ten o'clock. That yeah. must make it double tricky.
1: I, as I told you, I start at six. My bets are usually on by eight forty-five at the latest. I think that's your golden hour between eight and nine. By nine o'clock, the bookmakers have, have caught hold of what's what's happening. So, no, you've got to get your bets on early.
0: Yeah. So, um, I mean, people are always talking about the black market and stuff. Is that something that you've that you've sort of looked into? I have. I've. Um,
1: I, I, yeah, I don't know how you what you class as the black market, really. I suppose it's anybody who's not a high street or a main, mainstream bookmaker. So, yeah, I've got somebody that would take the bulk of my bets. Um, I haven't physically opened an account with one of these Asian companies or or, or whoever else. Um, and given the fact I say one bookmaker has just refused to pay out £7,000 in winnings to me, it just worries you a little bit. But how do you get on? I don't know how you get on at early prices. Nobody wants to lay you. I see now so many bookmakers now taking back the best odds guaranteed and and all these sorts of things. It's
0: Tough times for a punter. um, Wouldn't you think that if the bookmakers took away all that and these justice payments, best odds guaranteed, extra places, and started laying people like you to lose a certain amount of money, that would be beneficial to you because some of the Australian punches I've spoken to, thirty accounts, they can back all to win two grand on each of them.
1: I understand,
0: so yeah. Apparently, they're not allowed to close accounts over there, are they? No, they they've got to lay if the price is there, but the price yeah. only gets laid once, and then it's
1: yeah. Oh, oh, listen, I would I would love that. I mean, I'm not look, I'm not having a go at Sky Bet per se, but you know their way of getting out of of laying best odds guaranteed is to put an extra place on. Well, what would he do If I'm not backing each way, which I'm not, what is that any use to me? That's no good to me. I've been five places when I want to back the horse that wins. It's just... I, can't, I don't. This is a whole new subject, and I don't have a lot of time for bookmakers at all. It's basically their way
0: or no way. Okay, so finally, give us some good practice. To help aspiring punters that want to be like you to okay. win. Turn, turn their game around. Okay. A
1: few that I've, I've written down is stick to what you know. Firstly, I only ever bet horse racing. I'm not tempted by betting on other sports or casinos. So just stick to what you know. Uh, number two, identify the racers where there's a potential bet. There's a race every few minutes. You don't have to bet in all of them. Most are geared up for the bookmaker to win. So identify the races. That's important. Limit Number three, I'll limit the...
0: I'll, 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 so what sort of races are they?
1: Ultra competitive races where you can look at the market, for example, and five and six, seven horses are priced roughly the same put figures to them, the figures come out roughly the same. So basically it's too much chance involved. I like to look at a race and see where my figures back up that there's only two or three potential winners in a race. I don't want to be clever and find 16 to one shots because the bulk of them will get beat. Yeah, one will win occasionally and you'll remember it and you'll talk about it, but then count all the losers in between. So that, that would be how I would say. I, I identify them suit me. I tell you, I put figures to the 11 o'clock yesterday for today's racing and then identify, do I want to look at those races? Because I'll spend up to 45 minutes to an hour looking at one race. So I don't want to be trying to do 10, 12 races. That would just no time. Three, limit the amounts of bets that you have. I try and limit it to two or three bets A day um don't spread yourself too thin because if you really fancy them you've got a a limited fund and you really fancy them you want all of it or most of it on that you don't want to have in five six bets where there's a fifth of that you want it the one that you really like you want to be hitting hard so limit the amount of bets to two or three um Always try and beat the price, number four, and this is what touched on earlier, get your bets on early. Remember that backing a horse at four to one at 8.30 or three to one at nine o'clock, the amount you would have got, the difference is the amount that will pay for your next losing bet. So the price is mega important. Number five, try not to let the market influence you too much. It's only somebody else's opinion, the market. So if you've got strong views, stick to that. Obviously, if something opens at 2-1, to it goes out to 8-1, to it ain't winning. But generally speaking, if you've got a strong opinion, don't let the market influence you too much. Number six, try and remain disciplined at all times. Sometimes we can lose money and you've got to get it back today. So I'm going to go in heavy. No, there's racing tomorrow. Doesn't matter if you lose today and win tomorrow. Just don't. Keep your head together. Get up, walk away. As the TV ads say, but it's serious. Just try and remain disciplined. But the two most important things for me, and I've touched on both. You've got to use figures to back up what you see. Your eyes will often deceive you. If I run past some dustbins, I'll look impressive. But you've got to put figures to that to see whether those figures back up what what you've seen. If they don't, be prepared to walk away. But figures for me, the most important thing. And number eight, the last one, is write down every single bet you have. I've yet to meet anybody who think they lose money back in horses. But yet, 95% of people do lose. So I don't know where all the losers are hiding. So unless you can put your bets down, and look at them and go, I lost, I won. I'm sorry, I, I, can't, I can't take that seriously. So that would be my eight
0: points that I would suggest will stand you in good stead. And very finally, Jeff. if anybody learns off of this and actually becomes successful, would you recommend the life of a professional punter? Definitely not. <laughs> definitely not it is, listen the good
1: times are great the bad times and, it, and it's a lot I'm in a better position now so as you said before I can stand a losing run but when you can't stand a losing run and I, re, I remember and, and I'll, I haven't even thought about this but I remember I can't even remember what year it was, but I'd split up from my missus, and I'd moved to Newmarket, and then I'd moved back here, and I couldn't afford to pay the mortgage. And I had a huge bet on a Mark Johnson horse at Newmarket, and everything, everything depended on it. I'd have probably lost the house in those days. I mean, it's 14, 15 years ago. It won, but that's what I call pressure. And no. Have a safety net. If you've got it on the job, great.
0: On that note, Jeff, bet responsibly, everyone. Correct. Thank you very much indeed (laughs) for your time. Thank you. You're
1: welcome.